As the cardinals gathered in Rome in early 1522 to elect a new pope after the unexpected death of Pope Leo X in December of 1521, they all recognized that the world had changed dramatically since Leo's election in 1513. Not only did Luther challenge the authority of the church and the pope, the Turks were traveling up the Danube River, threatening the eastern regions of Europe, and there were three new young kings making dangerous threats against each other, and most urgently, the church was deeply in debt. The cardinals recognized they needed somebody learned enough to engage in the theological battles, but they also needed someone with the experience in the politics of the day to be able to calm these warrior princes. They were initially thrilled when they finally settled on, the, on Cardinal Adrian Boyens, the scholar who was first selected to tutor Emperor Charles when he was young, then subsequently selected by the emperor to manage Spain while the emperor was in Germany. Within minutes of announcing the selection, the cardinals got their first indication that they had made a mistake because the people of Rome almost rioted after hearing the news of this barbarian being elected. I'm Evan Gertner. And I'm Mike Gagley, and this is Grace on Tap. Grace on Tap is a podcast dedicated to the review of the history and the theology of the Lutheran Reformation, all over a nice cold beer. So, we've spent quite a bit of time talking about the rise and fall of Thomas Munzer and the Peasants' Revolt of 1525. Uh, so, for today's episode, we're going to go back in time to the December of 1521. Luther started December of 1521 in the Wartburg Castle, hiding from his enemies and increasingly concerned about the rumors he had begun hearing about the growing Reformation excesses back in Wittenberg. Meanwhile, on December 1st, 1521, Luther's primary opponent, Leo X, died, supposedly of pneumonia. Boom, boom, boom. (laughs) Maybe something more than that. Maybe something more than that at the tender age of 46. Now, Luther died suddenly and wasn't even given last rites, which is, was sort of surprising given he was in the Vatican. Um, the suddenness of his death yeah. is highlighted by that fact. Yeah. One day after he complained about the wine that had been handed to him, so, he dies. Yeah. So Now, the Pope's cupbearer was arrested the next morning, but he was released by the Pope's cousin, Cardinal Giulio de Medici, uh, before any inquiry could be made, uh, the reason the cardinal gave for the releasing of the cupbearer was lest some great prince should be found mixed up in the matter, and he should thus acquire an implacable enemy. That's an interesting reason. I don't want to know who's guilty, because then I know he's guilty. <laughs> yeah, this is this medieval politics is. Really messy. It's and hard we, to negotiate with someone you know has killed your cousin, so it's better just not to know, apparently. I, I guess so, yeah. So, yeah, the... The, uh, the Pope's cousin. At the time, this this man, this Cardinal uh, Medici, he was the lead candidate for the papacy. So, so he has got some need to keep allies yeah. and, and not make enemies. Now, over over the course of history, in the past 500 years or so... Uh, people have wondered if uh, if Medici killed Leo, if Giulio Medici killed Leo. But um, there was a, a, a Thomas Dyer, he was a pretty well-respected uh, historian of the 19th century. It, really, I, I did a lot of, lot of my researches based on what he had. 
and he believed that the Cardinal shut down the inquiry mostly because he didn't want to lose votes for the papacy. Uh, like you were saying, it's sort of hard to get a vote from somebody if they killed your cousin, you know, so he, he'd rather just not know. Um, now Leo X died with an agenda that had not yet been finished, that he had been elected to carry forward. And so some items on Leo's agenda that are still now going to be on the new Pope's agenda include the Turks, who are threatening Hungary. There were, of course, the young kings of France, England, and Spain who were ready and anxious for war. And Lutheranism is a growing irritation. Um, But most urgently, like we said in the opening, the church was completely broke. Leo's table alone cost about 100,000 ducats per year, which is... About $15 million. So what's, when I hear table, I think of like dinner table. I think it's the all the people that are dependent on him. The the people that would feast on his table is what that's meaning. So as you think of uh, the, the bureaucrats and all of those that only have a job because Leo keeps them at the table. How expensive is it to keep those friends at your table? He's paying for these people to surround him at his table and keep him important. And the cost of keeping the people at his table is not the influence of his character or the excitement of his agenda. It's the fact that he is spending about $15 million in 2018 dollars. Wow. So upon his death, Leo had debts of about 850,000 ducats, which is roughly as close as I could do the math, you know, which is, it's not easy. Yeah, there's not a world exchange right now for dollars to ducats, but (laughs) how much is it? About $127 million in debt. And And there's no money to pay this debt. No money. There was no money in the papal treasury to pay that debt. So, And there's people who had loaned Leo the money. Now, those are mostly his friends. Leo had a lot of wealthy friends. And they were kind of paying for some influence by making these loans. And as soon as Leo dies, they start taking whatever is not nailed down at the Vatican away uh, as their uh, security, their collateral that they're now recovering uh, to recoup their losses. Because there's no expectation that the new Pope may or may not pay them back. Right. And, and I mean, the the church was so broke, the, the Vatican couldn't... How afford, broke were they? <laughs> they were so broke that they couldn't afford candles for for Leo's funeral. They had to reuse the candles from a uh, the cardinal... And I actually have the name of the cardinal. Cardinal Riario uh, had just died. And and so they, they, they used his used candles for Leo's funeral. It was amazing. That is so poor. That they had to reuse candles from a previous funeral. Yeah. yeah. So after the death of Leo, the, the Roman church uh, engaged in one of the most open and politically motivated papal conclaves in all of history. So there's three strong factors, uh, factions, trying to manipulate the voting for their own benefit. So the, the, the first was, uh, uh, so Leo, first you have to know, Leo X was a Medici. And the Medici family wanted to continue the work of Leo. They wanted that, so they pushed for the election of Cardinal Giulio di Medici. The who, guy who had shut down the inquiry and released the cupbearer so that they didn't know who was guilty. Yes, yes. Uh, now the interesting thing is Cardinal Medici was very active in Leo's papacy and most kind of the chief of state. He really was, uh, and he was most familiar with uh, Leo's long-term plans. 
So really, he was very qualified for that for that job to carry forward the legacy. Yeah, but unfortunately for for uh, for Medici's for the Medici's is that there was stiff opposition to another Medici as pope. Um, King Francis specifically of France sent a note to the cardinals that said if they elected a Medici, neither the king nor anybody in his kingdom would obey the Church of Rome. So there's the threat of schism from France if if they elect a Medici. So that that was... Uh, um, and that's where money could come from to pay back the debts is to be able to tax in France. If you can't tax in France, you can't pay back the debt. That's... And, you know, nobody wanted to... Besides the division that would cause to the right, church. Right, I mean, there right. is that. They don't want to cause theological schism. But also, they need... They need the money. They need the money. They need the money. So... so and now, uh, Piero de Tommaso Saderno, also from Florence, just like the Medici family, uh, he is a friend of uh, Niccolo Machiavelli, uh, and he worked together with Machiavelli to implement Republican rule. So, uh, the sidebar, in, in uh, researching this, I learned that Machiavelli's famous book, The Prince, was a, was, uh, was a rule book on what not to do as a leader, and there are many who believe that he was making fun of the Medici family. This was a, a satire against the Medici's, basically saying, this is what they do. And, you know, and it's just... Uh, he, so, he, Soderini, who is in the same area as the Medici's, is recruiting the French as his allies, and... Uh, he supported the French whenever he could. I couldn't figure out why, honestly. But mostly because he wanted to strengthen his hand against the Medicis. Yeah, yeah. So the French hated the Medicis, obviously. Uh, so the uh, enemy of my enemy is suddenly my friend, is Soderini's attitude. I, I, it seems that way. Uh, the French paid Soderini uh, by supporting him. Or, uh, they paid him back by supporting him in, in, with their votes for the new pope. So, so whoever Soderini wanted, that's who France was going to want. Right. And then finally, you have uh, the English king, uh, Henry VIII, wanted his right-hand man, Cardinal Thomas Wolsey, to be made pope. Now, the interesting thing is there was a deal between Henry and and Charles, Emperor Charles V. Uh, Emperor Charles V is the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. Yes. And he's the third young king. Uh, yeah, of this. this uh, so they, they had an agreement where Charles would support Wolsey, um, uh, agreed to support uh, support Woolsey uh, uh, in the background, um, but Charles he gave like a soft support for Woolsey. Well, well at first later. though, before the support comes to Woolsey, I think this is part of the reason why it's it's complicated. Is Henry and Charles V first agree together to support the Medici's? Okay, because. They know that that will never go anywhere. Oh, and, that's and right. And once they're promising to support the Medici's and it's shown to fail, then Henry can propose his Cardinal Thomas Wolsey as an alternative. That's right. And so the Henry and Charles V first have this side uh, support for the Medici's, but it's just kind of some play acting because they build, know and they want to build an alliance with the Medici faction, so that they, when the Medici. Uh, candidate fails the medicis will also support them in henry's candidate and and we'll see yeah so now this goes back to the you know the question why would charles want wolsey why would charles go through the trouble of supporting wolsey and it goes back to charles being elected the holy roman emperor charles was running for the title of emperor against francis of france and Henry of England. So, and part of the negotiations to gain the role of emperor, Charles made a deal with Henry 
to support Henry to give his votes to to Wolsey, who's Henry's right hand man, if the when the time came to elect the next pope. So back in 1517. Um, what, no, 1519 when Charles V is elected. 1519 Charles is elected. They make this deal. They don't know how long Leo's going to live. Right. But Henry knows he's got this IOU in his wallet. Now Leo dies and Henry uses this IOU. Charles, you said, uh, if I support you for emperor, you'll support my candidate for pope. Now it's time. Yeah. Yeah. And so what ended up happening was, um, uh, uh, Charles made good on his promise, but he, like I've mentioned earlier, he didn't give his wholehearted support to Wolsey. And they needed 26 votes to win. Wolsey only came up with 20 votes. That nobody came up with enough votes at this point. There no. is a deadlock. Thomas Wolsey, supported by Emperor Charles and King Henry VIII, does not have enough votes. Tomasalo Soderini, supported by Francis I, King of France, he also does not have enough votes. And who else doesn't have uh, enough votes? Gi- Giulio Medici. Uh, the most qualified. The one who was the chief of state. Yeah. Uh, chief of staff. But uh, he, because he was opposed by Francis, uh, who threatened to leave the Catholic Church if Medici was elected, he didn't have enough votes. So, so now, Wolseley, Soderini, and Medici, none of them have enough votes. Who's going to be the cardinal uh, that is chosen to become the next pope? Well, Medici, Cardinal Medici himself, at some point in, uh, right, you know, during this deadlock, deadlock, he brings up the idea of having Adrian of Utrecht. So, uh, a a man from the Netherlands. Yes. Uh, Now, who is this Adrian? He was the tutor to the Rome, to the emperor from the time Charles was seven years old. Now, as the emperor grows in power, he gives his tutor more and more authority in different positions. Uh, in 1515, Charles wanted to be the ruler of Spain instead of his younger brother, Ferdinand. Adrian is the one that was sent to Spain to negotiate with Charles' father. Now, Adrian succeeded, and Charles was eventually made the ruler of Spain when his father died. So, to reward Adrian for the successful negotiation, Charles then appoints Adrian the Bishop of Tortosa. And the, so the appointment was approved by Leo X in August of 1518. And, uh, and then when Charles leaves to, for, from Spain to become the emperor, he has to go to Germany. To, and, and we talked about the, the, him leaving and going to Germany and all the problems that that was. And how he barely knows German, but he needs to leave Spain to go to Germany to settle the dispute in Germany. Who does he leave in charge in Spain? Adrian. So Adrian is effectively the king of Spain He's the stand-in king of Spain during this period. So almost immediately after Adrian is suggested uh, by Cardinal Medici, he is elected to be the next pope on January 9th, 1522. So it took months. Uh, It took about a month for the news to reach Adrian in Spain. Adrian took another two weeks to accept the position, and he kept his thoughts to himself during this time. But he was considering turning down the position, it appears. Well, one interesting thing I found was a letter from Adrian to King Henry VIII, wit- wit- written a few days after he was first told he was going to be the Pope, uh, but still almost two weeks before he accepted. So this helps give us uh, an introduction into his mind of how he understands the situation in Europe that he would be walking into. 
And in this letter, Adrian laid out a plan for an alliance between England, uh, Henry, and the Emperor. Now, I, I couldn't find any reference to France in all of this, but it seemed like Adrian was thinking that he had to find some way to control f- France through so, this alliance. So Adrian wants to show to England and Charles V, so between Henry and Charles, the three of us, Adrian, Henry, and Charles, we can get along, and essentially we don't have to worry about it, Francis at all. Yeah. All right, so time for our beer break. We have been talking about a lot of smoky room activity (laughs) about the election of a pope um, in 1521, 1522. And in honor of that kind of backroom deal that happens in the election of Adrian to be Pope, we have a Rauch beer. This is a smoked beer, and uh, it gets its smoky flavor um, from the barley malts that are kilned over a fire of beech wood logs. Um, this particular beer is from uh, Bamberg, Germany, uh, the Schenklera Maltings. It's brewed in classic copper vessels and matured for months in the 14th century cellars. Um, it is a unique experience. This, this is. Why don't you read what the the brewery themselves? Uh, so <laughs> what do they have to say about this experience? So they 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 have a little quote here. They say, uh, "Even if the brew tastes somewhat strange at the first swallow, do not stop, because soon you will realize that your thirst will not decrease and your pleasure will visibly increase." So uh, when we open this beer, uh, Josh. Uh, uh, sampled it, and he said it tastes like. Uh, what did he say? He said it tastes like salmon, smoked like smoked salmon. salmon, smoked salmon. And you know, I think he was right. The, the, my first taste of this, this is the first beer I've ever had that tasted like smoked salmon. And I, I, I'm, I'm not a big fan of smoked salmon, but. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, for all of you uh, listening, uh, we are in a, a small room that Josh has built in his basement. Um, and, and there is a hover about three feet down from the ceiling in this small room of smoked salmon. <laughs> Cheers, Mike. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, uh, so I think the key is not to breathe in as you put your mouth on the, the cup. Yeah. You, and, and just essentially not breathe it at all, but just taste it. And once you do that, it's, 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 it's good. You know, it's funny. It's one of these things that, and I don't know if I ever mentioned this to you before. When I was, uh, uh, when I was brewing beer, we had a a beer called the, the, the caviar batch. Yeah. We called it the caviar batch because it was an acquired taste. And you did that on purpose? No, it was a terrible tasting (laughs) beer. (laughs) And is this similar? (laughs) It is. So. But the smoky backroom <laughs> deals are there, and we appreciate uh, Kirk Seifkirk for donating this beer. Uh, he was very interested in us tasting this beer because he lived in the town where this beer is made uh, for the first 18 months of his marriage, um, and he would have a steady stream of visitors, and he says that he would always take them to the Schlenkera uh, Brewery uh, to try this interesting rock beer, um, and... Uh, Often, if you go then in March, early April, um, you will find this beer there, and, and you could have it with some friends. Um, the malt uh, and the, the barley and all of this flavor, it's, it's unique. And uh, as they say, um, if this brew tastes somewhat strange at the first swallow, 
Do not stop. You, you know what though? They're right because it is, I, I, I'm going to finish I, this beer. I'm going to finish it. I got about I got about um, we we split the beer as always, and uh, I got about through about half of my glass, and I've I'm gaining a taste for it. You know, yeah. I thought when I, that first that first taste, I thought, oh my goodness, yeah. But this is this is a. Uh, I'm enjoying this. We split a beer and then we share a beer with Josh, our, our sound engineer as well. And thank you, uh, Kirk, for providing this yeah, beer thank for you, us Kirk. today. So uh, we are now going back uh, to Adrian. And he does accept the position of being cardinal. And while he has considered uh, his trip to Rome um, and manages his position, uh, we want to look at how he does this. So there's a series of communications that will forever affect his decisions. So he's trying to figure out whether to go to Rome and and whether to accept the the pontificate. And he's in Spain as he's making these decisions. So um, he he heard he was Pope. And actually, I think we got the date wrong there. It was in late January. I think it was... uh, uh, we said it was January 9th. It was it was in late January, and I mm-hmm. I, uh, I miswrote the the date on there. Um, but it wasn't. I think it was approximately like uh, January 24th, something like that. But so in February, in February, Don Antonio de Studio, the Chamberlain of the Caravel, finally gave Adrian the official news: he is elected. Now, from the moment he was elected, everyone wanted to manipulate Adrian, and Studillo was no different. He told Adrian a lie that the French king. No, they lied. Ah, yes. In politics, I know, I know. All right. So he, he says that the Francis the first was responsible for his election, and you have to remember, this is so. Up until this point, Adrian was planning to ally himself with Charles, Charles and Henry, and Henry against. Francis and so now studio says you need to thank Francis for your election right and why did Francis supposedly support him because he thought Adrian was such a holy man yes and so Adrian was very flattered and he accepted this lie as the truth and it would forever affect his relationships uh, with, with Charles and with Henry I would yeah, presume that did it did and we'll play out that we'll see how that all plays out as the story goes on, probably that'll be in the next episode. This is just about the election, but the, the, that's something to sort of file away. Um, so Adrian begins his, his journey from Spain to Rome. Uh, which but the journey's as complicated as his election. It was amazing. He, he wanted to travel through France, but the emperor pleaded with him to avoid France because it would cause great scandal to all Christendom. Thanks, oh, by the way, you hear a dog that's, that's at our feet uh, scratching that's his Alfie neck right again. now. Thank you, Alfie. <laughs> Cheers to Alfie. So he's traveling uh, through France, uh, but the emperor says, no, don't go to France. That's uh, too great of a scandal for all of Christendom. So some of his advisors wanted Adrian to travel to England first to consult with Henry and Charles before going to Rome, but that really wasn't practical. So now Adrian is waiting in Spain while Charles and Henry meet in England to determine the future of Europe. So more backroom smoky deals. Yeah, and you have to remember, Charles and Henry are thinking they've got Adrian in their pocket. But well, really, they don't have Adrian in their pocket anymore because Francis supposedly has flattered him with this idea that he's such a holy man. Exactly. So in the meantime, Charles sent an ambassador to to Adrian in Spain. When the ambassador arrived, Adrian showed him the letter from Francis 
which was complaining about Leo and plainly asking for better treatment from Adrian. Now, Adrian also showed his own response uh, back to Francis, which stated he would not allow his personal relationship with the emperor to affect his management of the papacy. So when Charles and Henry finally finished their treaty in June, they wrote, they signed a treaty and then they asked Adrian to also sign it. But Adrian refused, saying he had to be a fair mediator to gather all forces of Christendom against the Turks. Now Francis is thrilled, and he offers Adrian an escort, if he would so like, to travel through France on his way to Rome. This infuriated Henry... And who said he would go to war with France and his right This is all about what road he travels on, by the way. Exactly. This is, this is just how he goes from Spain to Rome. And, you know, and Woolsey gets involved and, and Woolsey makes a comment that the, the real Turk, the real Turks are, are the French. The They're, real enemies of Christendom are not the, the Muslims arriving on the Danube on Eastern Europe's shores, but in fact is France. And Charles, even Charles is saying that he's frustrated with Adrian just in the decision on how he's going to travel <laughs> from Spain. To, to Rome. So then Charles arrives in Spain on the Atlantic coast side on July 16 to meet with Adrian. Um, and then that, so he's on the Atlantic coast side. Adrian's on the Mediterranean coast side and Adrian claims there's urgent news from Rome that requires him to leave. So before Charles works his way across Spain to meet with Adrian, Adrian's already on a boat heading for Rome. Ah, Charles is left standing at the altar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is not it's amazing. So so the people of so then the people So he's of arriving Rome, in Rome and do they welcome him with open arms in Rome? No, they do not. The people of Rome hated the idea of this barbarian Dutch Pope. Yeah. They they were afraid that the 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 the, the, the basically the the, the, the the headquarters we'll say, of the Catholic Church the is Catholic going to be moved Church. out of Rome and it's going to be sent to Spain or to Germany and that this Pope is just going to be a pawn of the Holy Roman Empire. Now, and this wasn't that long after the Avignon Popes, which moved it to France, right? There was like that. Mm-hmm. The, the, so yeah, there was, that's back in the 14th century. Yeah, so this was... It can happen that the yeah. papacy would leave Rome. So the issue was so upsetting that to the general populace that they mocked and yelled at the cardinals for electing a non-Italian... Uh, this was right after the election. Now we're going to go back in time. Right after the election. Before Adrian even knows about it. Before Adrian even knows about it, the people of Rome actually were almost rioting and the cardinals had to lock themselves in their homes to, to protect themselves from the people because they were, they were terrified of the, of. Because they thought Adrian was just going to be a pawn of Charles and Henry VIII. But in fact, Rome had nothing to worry about. Adrian, never had any intention of moving the seat of Catholic power away from the Vatican or being a pawn of anybody. Now, he doesn't arrive. So remember, he was elected in in January. And he hears about it in February 9th. He, he, he hears about it February, early February. How long does this journey take? August 29th. Mm. By the time he's, he arrives outside the walls of Rome on August 29th, and the cardinals greeted him with a speech about the kinds of reforms they hoped he would implement. Adrian answered that they must first stop sheltering evildoers in their palaces. They must stop the cover-up. They must stop hiding those priests 
and those evildoers that are doing wrong. Yeah, mm. and, and they have to allow the police free access to make arrests of evildoers. Now the cardinals are stunned. Yeah. Because this would be um, essentially saying that the church is liable to the state. That the church has to uh, see the role of the state um, in speaking of the wrongdoing of the church. Wow. Uh, so one of them uh, didn't get the memo and he, he comes forward with a request for a pardon for someone convicted of murder. And he, you know, he had just, Adrian had just finished saying. No more hiding and pretending that no evil is happening. So somebody comes forward and says, hey, will you sign off on this friend of mine who was convicted of murdering somebody? Will you just pardon him? Then he he's fine, right? He's a good guy. Yeah. Just trust me. And, and Adrian says, we cannot pardon anyone without hearing both sides. Again, the Cardinals are devastated. They thought they had a tool in Adrian. Yeah, and they don't. So now, August 31st, almost nine months after his election, Adrian walks into Rome. So all of this conversation on August 29th, this is just at the walls, uh, at the entrance to Rome. Yeah. And now, August 31st, he walks into Rome. He travels into Rome by foot as a sign of his humility. And when he arrived at the Roman gate, he took off his shoes and his hosiery as a sign of respect for the city. This really made a really good impression on the general populace who uh, immediately respected the uh, piety of Adrian. But things didn't, didn't go well with, with the higher classes. Right. How come? Well, he, first of all, he didn't speak Italian. You know, that, that was a huge problem. And he didn't understand the Italian manners. And most significantly, he had no appreciation of pagan art, of the art of Rome. And there is considerable expense uh, from the treasury of the Vatican to build up the artwork in Rome. Yeah, yeah. But this is specifically, he was, well, the, the example I read about was when he saw the Roman art uh, from around the time of Christ. Uh, there, there was some very famous artwork. Also, it wasn't just like how much money was wasted on building big basilicas. No, no, no. This is This is actually going and looking at the art from around the time of Christ. Oh, Which so is the, the ancient art. Roman, the, the pagan ancient, art from Rome, the, okay. The ancient pagan Roman art, and he's like, he turns in horror, and he well, says... He it's idolatry. Yeah, he says, this is pagan idols. And, and you know, the this is really one of the very few times Adrian got passionate about anything. He was a very even-keeled sort of guy. Um, so mostly relaxed peaceful, quiet, and easygoing, but he saw this preservation of the antiquity art of Roman times as uh, supporting of idolatry. Yeah, and which further strengthened their view of him as a barbarian. You know, uh, that this guy from from the, the Netherlands... Really so his acts know. of humility were contrasted with his acts of barbarianism, yes. of not appreciating the art of Rome. So the, the common folk appreciated the humility... But the nobility, the, the wealthy people of Rome were like, you don't know anything. You know? And so, um, and even, even his easygoing attitude about stuff, the upper classes hated that. They, uh, Leo, living with Leo there as the, uh, as the Pope was like a never-ending party. Leo, then Leo dies, they bring Adrian in, and suddenly this barbarian is there and he doesn't know how to throw a party. And he's just this, this quiet easygoing guy. Who's and he very thought the humble. reforms of the church that he could bring about would be ushered in through his piety. And he finds out 
you actually have to work through the politic of the church, and he wasn't equipped for that. No. So although uh, Adrian considered Luther a heretic, he he really had bigger fish to fry. Um, So he has to commit uh, to reform the abuses of the curia, that is the bureaucracy of the church. Right. And then he also had to commit to protecting Christendom from the Turks. So those are the really two big things. He thinks, and I, I, I'm, I'm sort of reading between the lines here, but I think he thought, hey, if we can, if if we can return the church to to holiness, then Lutheranism will go away. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, you know the, Of course, that's the fallacy of any sort of piety that through our own hands and through our own efforts we can restore our spiritual health. When in fact, Luther was making the point at this very same time that the only way we can ever find our spiritual health is by relying on Christ and not through the production of our own piety, but through relying on the piety of Christ. Right. And right. so this is Adrian's a great example of a well-meaning well-meaning, uh, pious man who seeks through his own demonstration of holiness to inspire holiness in others rather than pointing people to the singular truth of Christ. So, good yeah, idea, good idea, but it's not going to work. So, so for a few months uh, before he arrived in Rome, Adrian had already uh, defined the major outline of his pontificate. First, he said he was going to try to be a nonpartisan mediator between the three kings of Charles, Francis, and Henry to strengthen Christendom against the Turks. And second, he would try to reform the church. Unfortunately, uh, really, neither of those objectives gave him any natural allies. You know, nobody's going to be your ally in reforming the church. You know, it's not like you're going to make political friends and leading a reform of the the church. And and nobody's going to be a political friend if you're going to be just a neutral mediator and uh, between the three kings. So his pontificate only lasts less than two years. And uh, over this episode, we talk about his election. The next episode, we'll talk a little bit more about his uh, pontificate and then introduce his successor, uh, the very cardinal uh, who may have killed Leo X. Uh, Or, well, probably not, but he certainly swept it under the rug. Swept it under the rug. Yeah. So, I guess that does it. Uh, thanks uh, to, to Josh for all of his help. And we thank all the listeners. Uh, we have uh, about, I don't know how many listeners we have. We want to hear more from you. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, so so you can email us at graceontap.podcast at gmail.com. Or, or catch us at graceontap-podcast.com. Or on Facebook. Yeah, on Facebook, we post every time we have a new uh, episode online. If you're not on iTunes and you want to know when the new episodes are posted, you can see that at the, the website or at Facebook. We also are appreciative of the resources we use for this episode. Thomas Henry Dyer's book, Modern Europe, Volume 1, 1453 to 1530. And then Mandel Crichton, uh, A History of the Papacy from the Great Schism to the Sack of Rome. Which will come up in the that, yeah about two episodes from now. Sack of Rome. It's well, it's going to be a little way, a okay. little way. That's I think fifteen twenty-seven. I think so. It's it's down the road. But I think and then that we have the Vatican website also provided some helpful information. Yes, yes, uh, they they're always helpful, and and, uh, and then of course whether they know it or not. <laughs> <laughs> Brost. Brost. Brost.